is a long walk from the door to the pulpit. Just by way of starting, how many of you are morning people? I just want you to know that in heaven there are no morning people. Because the Bible says there is no night there. That means there's no morning either. I'm going to read a text to you. We're going to pray first. Then I'm going to read a text. Then I'm going to ask you two questions. And they may prove to be two of the most important questions you will ask yourself between now and when the Lord arrives. So let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, it's with joy in our hearts that we face another day knowing this day belongs to you. It's with joy in our hearts that we recognize that you have a plan for our lives and a plan for this world and you know us by name. And Father, we want to give this day back to you in service, out of gratitude. We're about to turn to your word and that's a holy moment and it's our prayer that we'd be reminded that whole time that when we're reading the Bible, we're hearing the voice of our almighty creator. Dear God, show us Jesus. Let us hear his voice. Let us see his face. Let us be more like him. Forgive my sin. Give me the clarity of thought I need to represent your words. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The text that I want you to look at this morning is found in the book of Psalms. It's in Psalm chapter 90 and verse 12. Psalm chapter 90, verse 12. It's very short. The Bible says in Psalm 90, verse 12, So teach us to number our days, so that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. The, the art of numbering your days is something that became necessary as a result of sin. Before sin entered the world, nobody really had to number their days. Adam didn't need a day book. He didn't need a PDA. He didn't need an iPhone. He didn't need a calendar on the wall. He didn't need Entourage, Outlook, or iCal. He didn't need a calendar. He had the sun, the moon, and the stars to help him tell the time, and he'd know when the Sabbath came and went. But for Adam, there was no limit to his time. If Adam started on a project and he didn't get it done today, he could do it tomorrow. And if he didn't get it done tomorrow, he could do it next month. And if he didn't do it next month, he could do it next year. And if he didn't get it done next year, well, he could do it next millennium. That's kind of the way that I approached college. It's a miracle what happened to me in college. Somehow I squeezed four years of a degree. It was tough, but I squeezed four years into seven. It wasn't easy. Adam had no time limits. Adam didn't have to plan for time. Adam didn't have to plan for the golden years. He didn't have to plan for retirement. He didn't have to plan for old age. He didn't have to build a bungalows because one day he wouldn't be able to take the stairs. And he didn't have to say to Eve, we should build a one-story house now before I get arthritis and I can't go up the stairs anymore. He didn't have those kind of limits on his time. He didn't have to say to Eve, I've heard about these all-inclusive cruises in the Indian Ocean and it sounds really nice to have an all-you-can-eat vegan buffet in there and you don't have to tip the staff and 
and you get a beautiful stateroom overlooking the ocean. And I was just thinking, you know, they're really expensive, Eve, but really we should do this before we're too old to enjoy it. Not going to happen. No limits on time. Try to imagine a world where there isn't any time. There's no limit on it. If you don't get it done this year, you could do it in a millennium. But sin changes everything, and now there is a limit on our time, and the clock is ticking. If you listen carefully in a lifetime, you'll hear this clock ticking in the background, marking your days. And God says, learn to number them, and use them well, and apply your heart unto wisdom. Time is limited since sin. We can't do everything we want, so now we have to make decisions. What are you going to do with your time? I have two questions I want to ask this audience this morning, and I want you to contemplate them in light of what it says in Psalm 90 and verse 12. The first question is so simple. What does it look like when you live your life well? What does a good life look like? I mean, if you do it right and you get to life's finish line, it's time to punch the clock, the Lord hasn't come, and it's time to punch out, and you look back, what would a good life look like? That's not a popular question in today's world because today's world tells you you can live any way you want, make up your own set of rules, live by them, and as long as you live according to your own conscience and do what you think is right, well, then that's a good life. I know that's what the world says. And the world says there is no such thing as a right life and a wrong life. It's what's right for you and right for me. And people say no such thing as the right way to live your life. But you know, we know that's not true. Everybody instinctively knows in their heart that's not the truth. How do I know? Anytime we see somebody get addicted to drugs or alcohol and they squander the time we have, it's universal to cry. We all look at that person and we say, what a waste of a life. We instinctively know they've blown it and they're not spending their life well. You can say all you want, there's no such thing as a wrong way to live your life, but when you see it, you recognize it. When a young person marries the wrong person and that spouse sucks the life and the potential out of them or they're abusive or they drag that person down, we all look at that and we say, what a waste, what a shame. There's another life that's gone. Time is being wasted. We know it's not true. There's no such thing as a wrong way. When a young person gets in a car and does something dumb, and the rest of us gather at the funeral, as I have a number of times, and we look at that body in the casket, we all say, what a shame, what a waste. That's not the right way to spend your time. We know that that life has been lost. So people can say all they want. There's no such thing as the wrong way to live your life. We know it's not true. In your heart, you know it's not true. So the question I want you to think about, what's the right way? I mean, if there's clearly a wrong way, there must be a right way to live your life. That's a question everybody has to ask themselves eventually. You will ask it. Believe me, you will. Either you ask it this morning in this auditorium before you leave, and you make some decisions about that, or you will be asking that question later in life when you'd wish you'd asked it earlier. Or you might be asking that question when there's 10 minutes to go on your clock and it's too late to do something about it. You're going to have to know what's the right way to live your life. It's a question I've asked a lot. I've noticed there's a big clock ticking in the background. I've noticed that time is moving along a lot faster than I ever dreamt possible. I, I've discovered that somehow I slipped from high school into middle age just like that. I don't know how it happened. I'm still a little stunned. How do I know it happened? I was on the airplane the other day, 
And a young lady, 26, sat down next to me. We struck up such a nice conversation. I found out she was on her way to Taiwan. And she's going to live there for a year. And as we're talking, she says, you know, my dad teaches ancient English. I said, that's fascinating. She said, really? Nobody's fascinated by that. I said, I am. I'm fascinated because my ancestors were Frisians. It's a little pocket of people that live in the north end of Holland and part of Germany and Denmark. I said, the Frisian language is intimately related to ancient English. They're almost identical. I'd love to meet your dad. She said, wow, you're the first person I've ever met interested in that stuff. We had such a nice conversation at the end. You know, you're always wondering, is there a spiritual interest there? And at the end of the conversation, I wanted to keep the discussion going. I said, what a shame the flight's over. I'd like to keep talking. How could we stay in touch? She said, do you have email? I said, yeah, but that's not going to help you much because there's hundreds of messages and it'll get lost in there. And my cell phone is off half the time. It's hard to reach me there. I know, I said. Do you have Facebook? She said, yeah, I've got Facebook. But I didn't think people your age used Facebook. I said, how old do you think I am? She started to backpedal. I was sitting in an airport with my family the other day. Ordered them a sandwich in this little restaurant. And in the restaurant, they had a little bar. We weren't at the bar. We were in the restaurant. But as I'm sitting in the restaurant, and my kids are eating their sandwich, over my children's head, I see a sign hanging behind the bar. And the sign says, in order to be served alcohol, you must have been born on this day in 1987 or earlier. I couldn't eat anymore. You know why? I graduated high school in 1987. That means... The people sitting at that bar, some of them were in the womb when I was getting my high school diploma. It happens faster than you think. A lot faster than you think. The other night I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning. I shook my wife. I said, hey, something's really wrong. I've been thinking about this thing. She said, what thing? I said, honey, I have burned more than half a tank. She said, what do you mean? I said, I've burned more than half a tank. She said, go fill your car up in the morning. You'll feel better. I said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm not talking about the car. I'm talking about my life. I've burned at least half a tank. It's gone. Maybe more. I don't know how much time I've gotten. The thing that bothers me is I'm not sure I burned that first half well. She said, go to sleep. You'll feel better tomorrow. I said, I didn't feel better in the morning. I went on the Internet. Does anybody else wonder about this stuff? And you know what I found on the Internet? When I get a hold of the kid that made this website, I'm going to throttle them just for a minute in Christian love. They posted the internet death clock. You know what you do at the internet death clock? You enter your vital statistics. Some of you are nodding. You've been, did you create the internet death clock? You put in your vital statistics. Here's what year I was born. Here's some of my lifestyle habits, male, female, that kind of stuff. And then it tells you, based on national averages, exactly what day you can expect to die. And then it starts counting down right there. A number pops up. And your time's running out right in front of you. It's terrible. At least, at least, I discovered it's going to be a Sabbath when I die. I can preach the sermon, then they can have the potluck and the funeral and save a lot of money. It started counting down. 3.8 billion seconds left. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick. That sounds like a lot until you realize when I'm done preaching today, I will have burned through 3,600 of your seconds. And by this time tomorrow morning, 86,000 of them will have gone by. And it's running out on you faster than you think. 
And as time goes on, you will see just how fast it's going to run out on you. The other day in studio, hesitate to share the story sometimes. I'm in front of a camera. And all of a sudden, the room begins to spin. And my chest hurts. And my left arm feels funny. And I think, I read about this somewhere. <laughs> so I push through till lunchtime, three or four hours. That's a guy thing, right? <laughs> push through to lunchtime, then I went to my office. My assistant called my wife and said, Sean doesn't look so good, you better come get him. They brought me to the hospital. I went in smiling. I said, you know, I don't really think I need to be here, but my crazy wife made me come. I said, what's the problem? Chest pain. They said, oh, we're going to see you. Went into the back, they hooked up an EKG and stuff. And all of a sudden, the room went dark. I heard my wife say, you're flatlining. And I felt her hands on my face trying to push my eyelids open. And I heard her saying, stay with me. Stay with me. Don't worry, honey, they're going to get the machine. I had two thoughts. First thought was this, why do they need a machine? <laughs> Second thought was this. I said this one out loud, apparently. Get your hands off my face. I don't like my face being touched. <laughs> I came too. Eight or nine doctors and nurses gathered around the end of the bed. Now they said, you gave us quite a scare. And I thought, wow. Turns out I'm okay. Not heart disease. It's not a heart attack. It's another little minor issue. And it'll be just fine. But I had a thought when the light started to go out. I'm okay with Jesus. And I didn't know what was happening. Maybe it was serious. I didn't know. I'm okay with Jesus. If I don't wake up from this until Jesus comes, I'm fine with that. But another thought crossed my mind. I'm not finished yet. I haven't done the things that I want to do. Now do me a favor this morning and close your eyes for half a second. Just do it. You're on a gurney in a hospital. The monitors are hooked up to you and you hear it change. And it's flatlining. I hope you can see it and get used to it. Because if the Lord doesn't come, it's really going to happen one day. Lights are going out. Are you okay with the life you led? Did you do what you wanted for the Lord? I hope you can see it. Because I'd rather you ask that question this morning than when it really happens. It's going to happen one day. You can open your eyes. Think about it. What does it look like when you live the perfect life? Question number two. What's our greatest need as human beings? People have said to me, you know what our greatest need is as a human being? It's food because you can't live for more than a month without food. Somebody says, it's water. You can't live more than three, four days without water. And someone else says, no, 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 it's got to be oxygen because you can only make it five minutes without air. Those are deep needs. They really are. But it's not your deepest need. Somebody says, is it love? Well, love's important. We know what happens if people aren't loved. You can go to an orphanage and you can pick out the kids that were loved because they thrive. And the ones that aren't loved don't thrive. And we know that in a good marriage, people statistically live longer. We know that. But that's not our deepest need. It's not our deepest need in life. Psychologically, they know now that our deepest need is to know that our lives mean something. That's your deepest need. 
We want to know. When I'm gone, is anybody going to notice I was here? When I cross life's finish line, is it going to mean anything? Is my investment in this earth going to have made a difference, or will I have just punched the clock? I mean, is anybody even going to miss me when I'm gone? Or am I going to become one of those headstones in the graveyard? Billions of headstones in this world, and one day if the Lord hasn't come, people are going to walk through that graveyard, wipe the moss off that headstone, read my name, and not have a clue who I was. Will my life have meant something? If you're a Christian, I would phrase the question like this. Did my life put a smile on the face of God? Did I make God smile with the time that he gave me? You see, about the last thing in life you want is to come up to the finish line, folks, and discover that you blew it. I mean, you can live with a lot when you're dying. I've sat with enough dying people to know. You can get to the finish line and realize you were poor all your life and that's not going to bother you then. You came into the world with nothing, you're going out with nothing. And in the last 10 minutes of your life, it will not bother you that you were never rich, didn't have a second home or a boat. That doesn't seem to bother people. You can get to the end of your life and discover, hey, I was never famous. My name was never up in the marquee, I was never in the newspaper or on CNN, I never published a book, I wasn't in the credits of a movie. People don't care about that in the last 10 minutes of their life, that doesn't bother them. You can get to the end of your life and say, you know what, I had a hard, hard life, it wasn't easy. And that doesn't bother you in the last 10 minutes of your life. As a matter of fact, most people will tell you if they've had a hard life, they wouldn't change it for anything at the end because that's that's what made them who they are at that moment. You can live with poor, you can live with not being famous, you can live with a hard life, but to find out you wasted it, that'll drive you mad. You get one kick at this cat called life. Sorry, I didn't mean to refer that anybody ought to kick cats. But you only get one kick at this cat called life. That's it. And you don't want to get to the end. Book of Ecclesiastes. Everybody ought to read it once in a while. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man of all his labor which he takes under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to his place where he arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns about unto the north. It whirls about continually, and the wind returns again according to his circuits. Solomon says, the world's going to go on without me. What's the point? I can't change anything. When I'm gone, the rivers are going to run, the clouds are going to blow over the sky, everything's going to go on the way it was, and my life was pointless. All things are full of labor, verse 8. Man cannot utter it. The eyes not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. Verse 14. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun and behold all is vanity and vexation of spirit. You know what he's saying. If I were to sum it up, he's getting to the finish line. He's looking back at everything he has and everything he's done and he says, what's the point? I blew it. I blew it. You can build stuff with your life, but it's going to crumble. You could write a book, but one day it's going to end up in a garage sale or for sale on Amazon.com for 89 cents and nobody buys it. You don't want to know how I know that one. You can accomplish everything in the world, but it's going to fall apart on you one day. 
And he says, what's the point? Now think about this. If the book of Ecclesiastes was written by a slave, he spent his whole life working for somebody else's dream, then you could understand why he'd be kind of bitter and write stuff like this. If this was written by the CEO of Chrysler or GM or Ford this morning, and they look at everything they've built with their lives, and now they have to ride, well, next time they'll ride bicycles to Washington, D.C., Asking for a handout to patch it all back together. It's all falling apart on them. You could understand why they'd write stuff like this. If this was a family that just lost their home here in America and they're out on the street and they wrote this, you'd kind of understand why they wrote that. They sound bitter because they just lost it all. If this was a student in the hallway at a university running his finger down the grades that are posted in the hall and he sees that D- minus in chemistry. Not that I know anybody like that. A D minus in chemistry. You can understand why they write that. What was the point of all that tuition and all that class time and all that work if this was somebody working in a factory all his life and then when he's retired they take away his pension? You could understand this. If this is a farmer in Rwanda with ten kids living in a hut, you could understand. But that's not who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, folks. The king wrote it. And he had it all. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 8. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and the provinces. I got me man singers and woman singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments. He had the original iPod touch. And all the music he wanted, gathered it in the palace. He didn't even have to touch it. He just snapped his fingers. They sang whatever he wanted. He got it all. He had entertainment. Verse 9, I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. I did it all. I had it all. I tried everything. If they'd had bungee jumping and skydiving in Solomon's day, he would have done it. I tried it all, verse 11 of chapter 2. Then I looked on all the work that my hands had wrought and on the labor I had labored to do and behold, all was vanity. That's the number one sentiment in the world today. There's no point to life. People around you don't know what life is about. We're told that people around you don't believe there is meaning to life or a point to their existence. This guy had it all. Solomon had it all. And then he gets to the end and he finds out his time was wasted and he doesn't have the one thing your heart craves more than anything else. And the one thing your heart craves more than anything else is to know that God is smiling about your life. He doesn't have the smile of God in the end. It's horrible. He finds out he blew it he wasted his one and only life. He gets to the end and he finds out he's playing on the wrong side. That's a horrible discovery. Steve went to my high school. I'll call him Steve to protect his identity. Steve could not play soccer to save his life. He was horrible. He was the one kid in school that made me look like a pretty good soccer player. I, mean, I was the second worst in the school. If Steve hadn't have come to that school, I would have been the last one picked for soccer every time. But Steve came, and that was a merciful thing. I mean, he was horrible. 
Nobody wanted Steve on their team. And then one day, the miraculous happened. All of a sudden, Steve gets the ball. And we all, oh no, Steve's got the ball. But the, this amazing thing happened. He went up the middle of the field, and it was like the Red Sea parting, and everybody got out of his way. He ran right down to the end of the field. He kicked the ball right into the goal. And he turned around. He punched in the air. Yeah! i never forget the look of victory on that guy's face. And our jaws all dropped. We couldn't believe it. Steve had just scored on his own goal. <laughs> you don't want to get to the end and find out you're playing for the wrong team. It'll drive you mad. You want to make that decision now. You do. There's a story in Acts chapter 9 that used to haunt me. It's a story of Saul, promising young man at the height of his career, and he knows what he wants. He knows what he's doing. He's defending the honor of the religion of his fathers, and he's making a career out of killing Christians. And everybody loves Saul. He knows he's right. The leaders are happy. Saul is their champion. He's their darling. They love this guy. They gave him a license to go and kill Christians. And Saul is working for the temple, and he's never been more right in his life. He knows. I mean, how much more right could you be than working for the high priest? He knows he's on the right team. Verse 3 of chapter 9. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shone round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In a heartbeat, he finds out he'd thrown himself 100% into the wrong thing. He's playing on the wrong team. He's actually playing against God. You don't want to find that out. Not at the end. You want to make that decision now. I remember Pete coming to some evangelistic meetings. We pled with him, would you choose Jesus now? He came to more than one evangelistic meeting. He came to several. He'd show up once in a while over the years, never would accept Christ. And then all of a sudden it was too late. He's on his deathbed and the preacher showed up and was pleading with him again. And the last words out of his mouth, he was quoting the Bible, Jeremiah 8. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And I'm not saved. You don't have to finish like that. You're going to have to ask the question eventually. What's the right thing to do with the life God gave me? You're going to have to ask it. And I'm begging you, ask it now. Ask it now. Saul asks two questions when he falls off the horse. First question he asks, who are you, Lord? Verse 5. That's a good question for you to ask every day of your life. You ask that question in sincerity. I mean, that's the theme of the great controversy. You ask, who are you, Lord? And you'll get closer and closer. That's a good question to ask. Next question, verse 6. Saul says, Lord, what would you have me do? Take your calendar, turn it over to God, and he will fill it in, I promise you. Say, Lord, my life is yours. What do you want me to do? He'll fill it in. Trust me. Saul ends up three days in the dark. He goes blind. He's by himself in the dark, and you've got to wonder, what's he thinking about in the dark by himself? I mean, he just, 
He just found out his whole life's a big mistake. What's he thinking about? I got a hunch I know because I've been there. About 20 years ago, I started asking those same questions. I didn't physically go blind, but I found myself sitting in the dark. There was a point in my life I thought money was everything. Thought if I could just accumulate some wealth, I'll have a great life and I'll spend my time wisely. I thought that's really what life is about. But people are discovering today that if that's what your life is about, now you're meaningless because the money's gone. Heard a guy on the radio the other day. He says, I was making 15% a year on my wealth consistently and I got a phone call last night. It's all gone and now I'm worthless. What he's really saying, I'm meaningless. Why? Because his entire meaning was that bank account. That was the purpose of his life. And when that's gone, and it will go. You don't have meaning. There was a point in my life I thought it was entertainment. I love music. I have two iPods. I studied music at the conservatory for 10 years. I love music. There's nothing wrong with some music. I mean, I love Rachmaninoff. Wow. That's good stuff. But when entertainment takes over and that's what you're spending your life on, wow. I mean, when I was in college, I did a number of really dumb things. And one of the dumb things I did is I took the little money I had. I decided my apartment was missing something. And so I went out and I bought a TV set. I didn't have enough money for food, so I bought a TV. And I made a remarkable discovery. I put the TV in the bedroom. You know what comes on at 9 o'clock? MASH came on at 9 o'clock. Oh, I can't miss MASH. That's exciting stuff. And I'd watch that, and there'd be a rerun of MASH after that. And then I discovered at 10 o'clock, at 10 o'clock, the news came on. Well, that's the news. Everybody needs to see the news. And after that, David Letterman came on at 11 o'clock. Oh, David Le- you can't miss David Letterman. He would do Velcro Man. You know what Velcro Man is, right? He'd put on a Velcro suit and jump on a mini trampoline and stick to a Velcro wall. You've got to stay up for that. How do you miss that? And then there'd be the midnight news, and then I discovered that 1 o'clock in the morning, Bonanza came on. That's the one and only time you'll ever hear me sing in an Adventist meeting. I couldn't miss Bonanza. And then that was over at 2, and I'm too wired up. I'm thinking about Bonanza. I can't sleep. And so I would go to bed at 3 in the morning. And the only problem with that is I had a class in symbolic logic at 8 a.m. And the only reason I didn't get an F in symbolic logic is I plea bargained for an incomplete with the professor. And I wasted all those countless hours of my life. They're gone forever. And what did I have at the end of it? I knew how to run a squatter off the Ponderosa, but I didn't have what I needed to get into law school. Gone those hours. Then I thought it was about power. My number one ambition in life, I wanted to run for public office. Oh, I wanted it so bad my teeth hurt. I wanted to ride in a big car to work. I wanted to sit in the premier's office. I'm Canadian. We have premier's. I wanted to say, I heard yay from the Canadians. We're taking over your country, Americans, one preacher at a time. I wanted to be important. I wanted to ride in a car, sit in a big office. I, I wanted to be on TV. <laughs> Funny how that worked out. I thought that was the most important thing in the world, to wield power. And I went to a fundraiser one night. And I excused myself, one of these big $1,000 a plate things, raising funds for a campaign. I wasn't there eating the plates. I was there serving the tables. And, well, you don't eat the plates anyway. You eat what's on the plate. I just don't want people to have the wrong idea about Canada. 
And I left the auditorium and I went to the men's room. And I opened the door and there was a cabinet minister, one of the most powerful people around. And he's laying on the floor and he's drunk and he's crying. And he looks up at me, I'll never forget it, tears running down his face, his shirt all rumpled. And he says, my life doesn't mean anything. And I thought, you got everything I want. This is what I want and your life doesn't mean anything. What are you supposed to do with the life God gave you? It's horrible to find out you're blowing it. There's this story in Mark chapter 10 about a young guy who had it all. He had prestige. He had power. He had influence. He had everything. And the story says one day he sees something that suddenly makes him realize he's got nothing. What did he see? He saw a group of kids sitting on Jesus' knee. And Jesus is smiling at them. They have the smile of God. And he looks at it and something in his heart breaks and he comes running to Jesus and falls in front of him with everything that he has going for him in life. And he says, I don't have what I just saw. What do I need to do? What do I need to do to have eternal life? What's he asking? Wants to live forever? Oh, I'm sure he does. But there's more to eternal life than living forever, folks. It's not just about how long you're going to live. It's about how you live. See, time's not necessarily a reward. Ask prisoners about that. Time's not necessarily a reward. I asked a couple one time. They had their 50th wedding anniversary. And I asked, they, they had said, well, it's our 50th wedding anniversary. And I said to the lady, I said, that's so exciting. You must be so happy. She said, happy? I can't stand him. Is time a reward? Eternal life's not just about how long you live, it's about how you live and who you're going to live with. And the interesting thing is, is this young man falls in front of Jesus, have you kept the commandments? Yeah, I've kept the commandments. Well, said Jesus, as far as I can see, there's just one thing you're missing. Sell what you have, pick up your cross and follow me. What's Jesus saying? Wrong to have some money? No. I know that because at the end of the story, the disciples all look at each other, they realize what's going on and they say, well... If that's the case, who can be saved? They're not all wealthy. The issue is not the money. The issue is can you leave your set of priorities? Can you leave what is secure and nailed down and confirmed and walk away with Jesus? You're never going to have happiness in life until you learn to do that. You make God's priorities the marching orders of your life and you'll wake up one morning and discover you're happy. But if you try and pursue happiness, you're never going to catch it. You're only complete as much as the smile of God is on your life. There's a story in Luke chapter 12. It haunts me. I preach on it all the time. I'll preach on it again. Luke chapter 12, a guy comes running to Jesus. He said, I've been ripped off. Luke 12, 13. My dad died, left us money. My brothers took it, and now I don't have my share. And Jesus, you always do what's right and fair. Can't you tell him to give me the money and... Jesus said, I'm not here for that. You've got it wrong. I'm not here to help you sort out who's got the money. I was surprised the very first time I read that story. I thought, isn't Jesus interested in what's fair? This guy's not trying to steal something. He really has the money coming, and he's asking Jesus for help. And Jesus just blows him off. Or does he? Verse 15, Luke 12. Jesus said, 
Take heed, beware of covetousness. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Jesus said, let me spare you a lifetime of grief. You are more than the things you own. That's not what life is about. In a few simple words, Jesus tears down the priority system of a sinful human race. He says, be careful. Don't build your life around stuff that's not going to last. There's only one thing that lasts in this universe. Daniel 7 says, the ancient of days gives Jesus a kingdom that will never be destroyed. If you want to build your life on something that counts, build your life on something that's going to be here 10,000 years from now. Everything else is going to pass away. It's all sandcastles. You build sandcastles. You know what happens the morning after you build a sandcastle, don't you? The tide comes in and washes it away. And everything in life is a sandcastle. It's going to wash away. Everything but Jesus is going to wash away. Everything's a sandcastle. It'll slip away on you. Trust me. I know if you're 15 this morning and listening, you're going to have trouble believing this, but it will slip away on you. Childhood is a sandcastle. One day you're playing in the sandbox. Next day you're building one for your kids. And the day after that, they're burying you in that same sandbox. It goes fast. Youth is a sandcastle. The other day I looked in the mirror and I thought, what happened? I turned into my dad. That snuck up on me. Wow. I'm old. I know some here that are older than me and I'm smiling about that. I got... You know, I got some hope. <laughs> I looked in the mirror. I thought, where's my hair going? People say, Sean, you got lots of hair. Well, that's because I comb it over so well. It's going up in the corners. It just started going the other day, and I'm panicking because my younger brother did lose his hair, and now mine's going, and I noticed in all the flash photos, there's this bright spot in the front. The flash shows through. And the corners that are going higher, they're trying to meet in the middle. They're moving across, and I'm going to get one of those puff balls in the front. <laughs> And I'm thinking, where did that hair go? And I found it. Uh-huh, I found the hair. It's growing out of my ear and on my back now. Oh, you're laughing, young men. I'll come visit you in 20 years. It's going to slip away on you, I promise. And I want you to ask the question now. What should I do? What does it mean? I'm begging you. Invest in something that counts or the moment will come where you'll regret it. Do what counts. Don't waste it. You don't know what you've got left. What did the Apostle Paul learn? Three days in the dark and in a life of serving Jesus 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. In some translations of the Bible, Paul writes, My ambition is to please Him. He spent the rest of his life pleasing Jesus. And at the end, he says, I know there is a crown laid up for me. I'm ready to go. Are you going to be ready to go? I know it's hard to imagine it when you're young. I'm still young. There's a part of me that has trouble imagining it, but every so often a little hint comes along. You're going to die. If Jesus doesn't come, 
You're not going to fight it. You want to know? I mean, the Lord's probably going to come in our lifetime. I do believe that. I really do. But should he tarry? Either way, you want to hit those finish lines the same way, whether it's Jesus coming or the grave. You want to go and see what you're going to look like? Go look at mom and dad. You want to see what you're going to look like after that? Go to the cemetery. It's coming. Either Jesus comes or you cross the finish line. It's coming. And what are you going to spend your time building? In that verse where Paul says, my ambition is to please him three times, he tells you what he means in that same chapter. Three times. He has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. That's the meaning of life. Philosophers have worked on it for thousands of years, and your Bible tells you what it is. We are ambassadors for Christ. That's how you finish well. That's how you look back with no regrets. That's how you know that you have the smile of God on your life. And people have said to me, but I don't know how to make God smile. There are talented people that preach and give Bible studies, and that's not me. I don't know how to make God smile. Yes, you do. Last year, I had an operation. Now, as I'm reciting all these things, it's quite apparent to me I've been in the hospital a lot. <laughs> I had this back operation. I'm all laid up. And my daughters come into the room. And they're really excited. They said, it's Father's Day. Daddy, we have a Father's Day gift for you. And they put a slip of paper in my hand, and I read it. It said, written in crayon, admit one, Father's Day show. And they ran downstairs. They said, you better hurry up. Show's about to start. So I got out of bed really carefully with my walker. I discovered something. Don't go down the stairs on your walker. I got down to the bottom of the stairs faster than I expected. And I eased myself into the sofa. And I could hear the girls, eight and five, giggling in the laundry room getting ready for the Father's Day show, and out they came. And when my eldest child came out of the laundry room, I thought something was wrong. Her eyelids were severely inflamed. I said, and being the sensitive man that I am, I said, what's wrong with your face? <laughs> well, Daddy, I mean, her eyelids were bright red, and she had glitter all over her cheeks. She said, Daddy, it's for the show. I said, what does that have to do with the show? She said, it's makeup. I said, where did you get makeup? I, I want to assure everybody my wife does not have bright red eyeshadow laying around the house. I said, Daddy, what? I, it's makeup. I said, makeup? You can't wear makeup. She says, well, you wear makeup on TV. Ouch. I said, how are you going to get that stuff off your face? She said, this is glitter stuff. It'll wipe off. And I said, what about that stuff on your eyes? And I could see her light up. She'd thought about this. She said, oh, that's no problem, Daddy. That'll come off. That's just jiffy marker. Scrubbed her face for three days. And I looked at this mess. Knowing my wife would blame me somehow. And they started to sing. And they made it up. We love you, Daddy. 
You're the best daddy in the whole world. We love you. You could have tickets to go see Pavarotti. You could have tickets to go see Celtic Woman. I wouldn't trade you in a heartbeat for that handwritten ticket they put in my hands. That was the greatest concert I've ever been to. Why? Because it was perfect? No, because they poured their heart into making Daddy happy. People say, I don't have what it takes to put a smile on the face of my Heavenly Father. Yes, you do. But I'm going to make mistakes. Yes, you are. You're looking at the preacher who has made the most colossal mistakes in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Let me put your mind at ease. You're going to mess up. It'll happen. But God's waiting for you to get out your jiffy mark. Not really. <laughs> you get my point, though? You're going to go out there with the glitter on your cheeks and the jiffy marker on your eyes, making the biggest mistakes in the world, and God's going to look down and smile and say, that's what life's about. And you're going to get to the finish line and you will be on that gurney if the Lord hasn't come. He's going to come. But maybe you're not going to make it that far. And when the lights start to go dim and you're having a little trouble hearing what people are saying, in your heart, you're not going to have a thing to regret. Not a thing. Soldier on the battlefield gets wounded. He's in the tent and he's hanging on for dear life in the mash unit. And they go and get the commander, Private Smith's calling for you. He went to the tent. Private Smith was beat up really bad and he could tell he hurt. And he rolled over and looked and saw the commander and he said, there's just one thing I got to know. Is my commander pleased? In the last moment, what he's worried about is if he lived well. The commander says, I'm pleased. And he smiles and slips away. It's going to happen one or two ways. You're going to be on that gurney or you're going to hear a trumpet and you're going to look up. And my question for you this morning is this. How are you going to live? You get one chance. Don't blow it. Go put a smile on the face of God. It's the only way I know at the end that you can look back without a single regret. I'm going to ask you to make a commitment this morning. Review your life. Look ahead. If you're particularly young, I envy you. You get to start now. Do it well. You get to make that decision. If you want the smile of God on your life, if you're determined to live in a way that makes angels rejoice so that you can cross the finish line with no regrets, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and raise your hand if that's you. Father in heaven, how thankful we are for the love of God. How thankful we are that we know our heavenly Father smiles 
when we spend the time you've given us doing what counts, teach us to build our lives on the kingdom of Christ. And as we go from this place this week, show us somebody that we could lead to Jesus. Because that's what life is all about. In Jesus' name. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.